All right, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the final episode in season six of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown, and today I'm joined, as always, for these last episodes by the undisputed king of Tom Petty playlists, John Paulson. Oh, I, that uh, is going in my Twitter bio, uh, bio I think, the undisputed queen. Uh, I'm sure there's some people there that would dispute it, but I like to think that I'm up there, at least top 10 in the, in the Tom Petty pod, uh, playlist uh, building uh, arena. Well, listen, I haven't seen anyone yet who's beating you, so I'm, I'm, I'm leaving it there. I'm leaving it as it is, in my opinion, so. Yeah, this is a fun fun album, Southern Accent, so you want to just dive right into it? Yeah, so I'll just get, I'll sort of give the, the you know, the, all the furniture about this. So it was recorded at, well, I mean, all over the place, Sound City in Van Nuys, Village Recorder in Sunset Sound, in LA Church in London, so that would have been a lot of the stuff that Dave Stewart put on there at Tom's House, which, you know, was ill-fated. Um, produced by, again, we're going to get into that. So Tom Petty, Mike Campbell, Dave Stewart, Jimmy Iovine, Robbie Robertson. Um, engineered again by Shelley Ackers and Don Smith. And then also I found David Bianco. So I'm assuming that that was either the engineer over in London or the guy that Robbie Robertson maybe brought in to do the, the edits that he did. Um, I'm not too sure about that because I couldn't find this specific information. Um, it was released on 26th of March in 1985. and recorded, of course, between 83 and 85 for reasons I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, peaked at number seven on the US chart, and there were three singles. Uh, so Don't Come Around Here No More, which peaked at number 13. Make It Better Forget About Me was number 54, and Rebels peaked at 74. And usually I talk about the additional musicians on the album too, but they're 25, so I'm not listening all of them. <laughs> so... <laughs> so a hodgepodge, like a hodgepodge of everything in this one, right? It's just crazy. And I mean, I think, you know, even the ardent Tom Fetty fans who love this album still recognize at least that it's just, it's all over the place. It's the it least is. cohesive album he made by so many miles, right? It is. And it was, uh, again, I love doing this podcast with you because I, I'm forced in a way to go back and listen to the album front to back 15, 20 times over the course of my research, <laughs> just to sort of understand it as an album. And then, uh, you know, this, these weren't the album. And as I mentioned it before, you know, I really got into them full moon fever and beyond, but these weren't the albums that I was listening to front to back. I did own this CD for the singles and I do remember, you know, the, the singles and, uh, but just listening to some of these album tracks and, and listening to it as a whole, it was, you know, looking at it from a critic's eye was definitely all over the place. Sonically, thematically, just everything about it. And again, when you get so many different producers coming in, that's always going to happen. And I, I, I was wondering afterwards, and again, we've got a lot of conversation to get there maybe, but I was thinking about if Robbie Robertson had produced this whole album, what that might have sounded, because the band have a lot of the same sort of rock and roll sensibilities that Dave Stewart definitely doesn't have, right. but they don't have that same kind of, big bombast that Jimmy Iovine has. I think it I think Robbie Robertson of all the people who worked on this might have actually suited as a producer for the whole album. I kind of forgot thinking about that after I'd finished I was like, yeah, that would work because you know, best of everything sounds a very specific way. And I'm not a, we'll get into it. I'm not a huge fan of all the horns on that. But the sound everything else, the way it's mixed and the way it sounds is more in keeping with what you expect from a heartbreakers record, I would say. Yeah. And I think the band is considered Southern rock, even though you know, there's a lot of Canadian yeah. stuff going on there, but I love, <laughs> I love the band. Their sounds amazing. And I think Robert Robertson would have done a good job as a sole producer and kept it more cohesive because I think he did do a good job. I, I differ with you a little bit on best of everything. We can get into that a little bit later, but I think he did a nice job with that track. Definitely. So uh, let's just start with rebels. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, peak 74 on the U S chart five on the rock chart. Um, <laughs> Tom couldn't finish it. Uh, I'm laughing because this story is just crazy. He went back and listened to the demo. It sounded fantastic. Uh, of course, he punched famously punched the wall, uh, destroyed his his hand. Uh, he said it was a huge wake up call, and he sobered up uh, for the remainder of the production of the album. Um, I do I do love that opening line. It just grabs you from the from the start. Honey, don't walk out. I'm too drunk to follow. Uh, it's crazy. This is one, you know, I've grown a, a larger appreciation for it over the years. You know, I think listening to it back, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, um, really it was, it felt like it was, you know, a love letter to the Confederacy, but it really wasn't. You know, you, you look at the lyrics and you start to dig into it and you hear what Tom said about it. It really is about a character who was raised that way and sort of embraces that and his perspective. And it wasn't so much that, it was Tom singing, you know, his, his own thoughts on it. It was just, he knows people like this and, 
just kind of, you know, living uh, in the South and kind of uh, resenting the Northerners and having lived in Memphis for, for three years, I can firmly attest to the fact that some Southerners are still upset about the Civil War and how it ended up. Uh, so I, I really think sonically it's it's a good, uh, catchy tune, especially for something that you're, you're looking at as uh, maybe the opening track for a uh, concept album about the South. I mean, to, to make a pretty good single out of that is is pretty impressive as well. And to be the opening song for any album, really, even if it's not, because like I said, sonically, it comes out the gate, you, you straight in, you're all in right away, right? It's just, it's it's, it's the perfect opening song. And like I said, you know, Paul Zolo in his book asked him, you know, some people seem Rebels as a song about history. Some critics say it was a muddled history. And Tom says, I don't see why it isn't really. It's a story song about a guy being arrested for drunken disorderly and his frustration at basically what a screw-up he is and he's trying to blame that on his heritage. So again, it is written from that perspective. So I think this is actually a pretty good point to jump into some of this stuff that I think, unfortunately, it is too easy to misinterpret that, right? And especially once you sort of get into Pack Up the Plantation and the Southern Accents tour where you're now bringing in that Confederate Im imagery and you sort of, you're diluting that message that, yeah, we're not, I'm not sort of a proponent for the lost cause or for slavery or any of those things or any of those components of the South. But when you mix that message and you start bringing out the Confederate flag and stitching that into your jacket and having it on the screen, you lose some of the impact of being able to say, well, I didn't mean it that way. You know what I mean? Like you can see mm -hmm. where that confusion came from for sure. Yeah. And there's, this is an underlying theme in all songwriting is that there's a subset of the audience that only listens to the chorus yeah, and really isn't diving into what the, you know, uh, each of the verses mean or what, what, you know, all the language that's going on there, what that all means. Cause that's where he really is explaining the song is, is, you know, in those verses. So, yeah. um, you know, you just listen to the chorus and you think it's like, Oh yeah, we're, you know, you know, we should have won the war or something, but he didn't help things by, you know, bringing the flag on to the confederate flag onto stage and kind of using it branding his tour and he regretted that after the fact i mean reading through tom's uh interviews throughout the years and stuff he was you know very much you know against slavery against racism i mean these are basic things to be against but he yeah. was not you know embracing any of that sort of mentality from the south and he definitely regretted and understood and tried to empathize with what the confederate flag uh, met for a large uh, part of his audience and then also for, uh, you know, African-American black people, uh, you know, just the sort of hate and pain that brings up. So I, I think he came full circle on that and sort of apologized for that aspect of it. But as a song, you know, it's a great opener. I do like the, the horns in it as well. And I think it, uh, it does a great job of kind of, you know, launch pad for this, for this album. And it was the horns that actually, I think, from reading um, back up in Warren Zane's book, that was actually kind of the triggering point that really triggered that frustration with how he couldn't get it to where he wanted it because obviously you've got those 12-string guitars in there. So it's a big full sound before you add the horns in. So trying to get the horns in, if you're not a producer and you you know that's not really your, your prime skill set, trying to get those frequency separations and getting that sonic space in there to fit those horns in so everything's not jumbled, that's tricky. And so that's why Jimmy Iovine comes back in. But it's at that point where he can't get this mix. And he said he goes back and listens to the demo that he'd written and realizes that the demo sounds better than everything he's done up to this point. That's where he goes and pulverizes his hand into the wall, right? So, yeah, he said he he said he felt lousy, quote lousy and lost about about the, pr the production of this album. He and you know he and Mike tried to produce it themselves, and there's just too many drugs around, and there's also yeah. too many people around. Hangers on, he was talking about. So it's just a different environment that the Heartbreakers were used to working in, and I don't think that was conducive to him uh, to be at his creative peak. Absolutely. But, but like I said, too, though, I, I, I still, I know, and I do have problems with, talking to Michael Washburn on last week's episode, he brought up that thing, that you know what I mean? You, you, you'll be more attuned to this than I would be in an American, obviously, but there's we sort of societally and culturally, well, being a Brit and we colonized, you know, we, we invented colonialism, you know, we, we started right. all that bullshit. Sorry, everyone. Um, but it's the idea that, you know, in 1985, it was a different time. We always say that it was a different time. So do we judge a piece of art by the standards of that time or by the standards of now? And Michael brought a really good point up and, and it sort of really made me think that that's a bit of a cop-out sometimes, right? Because like he said, people were thinking about these things in 1985. They were thinking about it in 1965. They were thinking about it in 1875. It's just that it was this cultural thing where it was allowed to stagnate and, and just keep perpetuating, right? And so having that conversation and being more attuned to that and sort of thinking about it a bit more 
you know, intelligently. I think it is incumbent on all of us to do that. But I think that's, some, again, something that I found, and people should go listen if you didn't listen to last week's episode because it was Michael's very thoughtful. He approached the subject very, very well, much more academically than I can do. I'm much more informed. Um, but aside from that, like you said, the song itself, if you just take that out, all that sort of context out of that and just listen to the song, and even some of the lyrics, even some of the lyrics that are a bit more neo-Confederate, you know, that line, I can still feel the eyes of those blue-bellied devils. That's just so poetic. It's so cool. That's such a great line. You can imagine when he wrote that line, just going, I can finish work for today. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good one. And that's one that definitely shows that it's from that you know point of view. Like you're, yeah. you're definitely getting into the head of this, the mind of this guy. And there is a counterpoint to it too that I don't know if you sort of looked into the artwork and obviously so it's a you know a painting by Winslow Holmer from 1865 called a veteran in a new field so he was a union soldier in the field not a confederate soldier and there's some questions about whether they sort of realized that when they were putting it together because it was Tommy Steele again from Steelworks who did the artwork and packaging with Tom so it's that thing of what well, that looks great and they've got this they know it's a soldier but maybe they don't pay attention to that so you again it's that there's another friction, another sort of conflict there with this album that makes it even more of, I'm just going to say a mess is not quite the right word, but makes it disjointed. So I found that really interesting. Well, let's just go in order here. We're going to skip over uh, track two, uh, but don't come around here no more. Uh, this is the the track that drove that album sales ranking to, you know, seventh on the chart or whatever. I mean, this was yeah. a huge hit for him. Fourth biggest hit for Tom peaked at 13 uh and uh, second on the rock charts 13 on the hot 100 or whatever uh you know uh, the thing i wrote here in terms i mean everything that's been said you know there's been everything's been said about this track right yeah. so this is obviously a terrific track it's the way it picks up at the ends is amazing uh you did a great job of outlining the live version of this because this is the memory for me is this was my first uh Tom Petty show, I believe, if I remember correctly, I saw him okay. at the Marcus, Marcus Amphitheater uh, during the uh, in, Into the Great White Open tour, and he was still playing a lot of stuff uh, from Full Moon Fever as well during that, that tour. So it's just an, if you look, go back and look at the set list from that tour, it's just incredible. But they had this giant tree on stage, and it was this long don't come around here no more this long theatrical performance and yeah. i really encourage uh listeners to go if they haven't seen it go to youtube and find that maybe you can put the link in the in the show notes to uh see that performance because that thing blew my mind just the way the strobe was hitting at the end and the way that the the the, the pace of the song picked up him running around the stage yeah. uh getting chased by uh former uh presidents <laughs> uh u.s presidents uh, it was really wild and uh you know just from the opening to to the end of that was just really a crazy moment in that in that show and it's one of my most vivid memories of a live performance by by tom but you know i think this is a little bit funny because he kind of took this from stevie nicks if you go back and look at the history of the of the song yeah you know it was sort of meant for her and he happened to start working with dave stewart prior to her getting there and lay down the track and she's just like, I can't sing it any better than this. So I, yeah. I wonder if it's a little bit, um, cause she had such a huge hit with stop dragging my heart around. I wonder if this is a little bit of payback, just karma payback uh, <laughs> for that. Like, not, I mean, he obviously gave her that song, but you know, he took this one and uh, did a great job with it and had a huge hit with it. What? And <laughs> yeah, I love that. Cause she, cause wasn't she, Jimmy Iovine sort of said locked her in a room or something, right? And said, don't come out until you've got some lyrics for this. And they sort of came back out and she threw him a, and they said, wow, well, these aren't great. So she goes away, comes back the next day. And yeah, Tom's got this whole lyric. He's well, what am I supposed to beat that? Like, I can't beat that. You know? <laughs> I think, I mean, I think Tom's intention was that she was going to sing it. Yeah. Uh, but she's just like, this is better than anything that I can do. I can't, I'm not going to try to compete with this. You, you run with it, Tom. It's kind of cool that too, right? Where you get artists to that level because she could have sung it and it would have been a massive hit for her too. But just that sort of little bit of humility and that bit of recognition that, yeah, I could definitely sing this, but not that well. I can't do it like that. And it's such like I, I always, when I sort of talk about this song with anyone, the one word that I always come back to is just weird. It's just such an odd, unusual, unique song. Nothing sounds like this song in the rock and roll canon, in pop music. I can't think of another one. It's one of those songs like Eleanor Rigby or We Will Rock You that is just its own thing. It just sits outside everything else that anyone's ever done. Yeah, and I wonder... I would love to know exactly how the the music for it came together. I mean, I, 
you know, Dave Stewart obviously had a huge influence on the song and wrote most of it or had most of it, uh, you know, in, in place. Uh, but, you know, it, it definitely has his stamp on it, but, you know, Tom's very much there too, especially the vocals and, and yeah. everything. And obviously the video is a huge mega hit uh, as well. So yeah, this is a, this is one of those weird ones where just you throw some weird ingredients together and you get just, you know, amazing uh, greatness. One from reading Dave Stewart's or like passages from Dave Stewart's um, autobiography, I think what happened was he basically got that drum loop. He'd got the drum loop in and all those weird sitar kind of sounds. And he had that that progression. And that's that was sort of the, you know, the verse section. And that's the structure of that song is even weird. There's like the verse chorus, oh, which bit? Well, don't come around here no more is the chorus, obviously. But then you got these other bits in there. Anyways, so he's got that written essentially. And he brings that to Tom. And that's where they start messing around with it and tom brings in the double time that's all tom said yeah we should go to double time here it should be more guitar driven now and then they get the guy with the cello you know they bring this this guy this symphony so tom says or dave says well we should put a cello in here and i guess dave just runs out of the room buggers off to los angeles to go find someone from a symphony brings this guy back in who isn't a fly by the seat of your pants musician and they say well just play and says i don't have any music you don't need music just play and this guy was like blown away like he couldn't believe that you could make music this way right so so everything about this song like i said everything about this song don't come around here no more with stevie nicks saying that to you know joel walsh like everything about this song is enigmatic and sort of mythological almost yeah sometimes you you throw these ingredients together and you just get you know horrible dreadful stuff (laughs) (laughs) in this situation you got you got genius we had we got genius out of it we get to enjoy it rest of our lives absolutely and it's funny because one of the things that michael said last week was or i think it may have been wrote in his book that if you if you try and sit down and play this on an acoustic guitar or just play it on a piano you you just you can't do it because it's more it's more a sort of a what did he, where did he put it it's more of a sort of a an accomplishment or an achievement of production than it is of composition it's like you said it's finding how to fit all these weird disparate parts into one hole that God only knows how, but it works, and it works really yeah, I'd like well. To, I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear uh, acoustic versions of songs like you know that are not acoustic or whatever, yeah. and uh, just to see how people interpret them. But I have a feeling this one wouldn't go over very well. It's just, I mean, yeah, Rebels is great. Dogs, you can do, and do both those songs he did acoustic later in his career. This one, yeah, you need the full production. So I'm really envious that you got to see that one live because yeah, that video is just something else. And Mike's intro. You, you, it's easy to forget when you've got he's just sitting in the background and he's just laying the rhythm down and everything else so they'll throw this all in but this guy could lead any band well he does now right he could lead any band in the world because he's just that good so underrated Mike Campbell oh god I mean incredible grossly yeah southern accents sure uh, you know this is a I think we talked about briefly through Twitter DMs and stuff. The only problem I have is I think you called it the side stick at the start. It sounds yeah. kind of, you know, echoey, maybe it's reverb or, you know, I don't know what the proper term for that is, but I don't, I'm not crazy with the, with the rhythm opening on this, but obviously right. it's, a, it's obviously it's a great song. I mean, it's lyrics are amazing. I mean, yeah, I love that lyric that that drunk tank in Atlanta is just a motel room to me. I think yeah. that was also uh inspired by a johnny cash uh something that johnny cash said to to, to petty uh if i'm remembering correctly uh just some some great you know vivid imagery in it and uh i i prefer the live versions to it for the reason of that uh you know opening sound but you know understanding that the studio uh version has its place i would love to hear a, if there was more of a stripped down less messed with production yeah. of it from the studio or a demo would be, I would love to hear it but I don't not sure anything like that exists certainly hasn't been released to my knowledge so um but I you know I, I love this song um definitely kind of a, you know a slower you know it's it's you know very melancholy and, and oh, God, kind of yeah. brings stops the album a little bit and makes you think and um but yeah just I think the the lyrics really shine the most in this in this track well, and I've always loved, we're talking about the live versions. My favorite version of this song is the the version live from Gainesville, you know, that was included on the rundown room because it's just, he's in his hometown and you can you can see the that it, it's real. The emotions, that's not an artist playing a part on stage to a crowd. That's a genuine connection with, with Tom playing this song in his hometown in front of his people. And it's just beautiful. And when, again, Mike's guitar playing on that version is just, it's so subtle and understated but it's so essential to carry the mood of that section of the song, you know? 
when it's, when, he sings, when, he, when, it's when he sings, oh, and he wheels away and his hands in the air. It's almost like this religious experience that he's having. It's so amazing. And I think he really captures the, you know, he talks about, you know, people say that this Southern accent is dumb or it sounds dumb. There is that sort of attitude, you know, in the South, people are so a little bit self-conscious. Some people are a little self-conscious with the way they talk yeah. and they think they sound dumb. I don't, you know, I, I think I've met a lot of intelligent, I've met, I've met a lot of everything in the South yeah. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, an accent doesn't make you smart or, you know, or dumb or anything, but it is in the, in the States, it's, it's definitely used as a, uh, an example of, you know, if you're trying to show somebody that's, you know, Hicks or backwater yep. or something like that. So I think the, the, he's sort of touching on that aspect of it. Like the, 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 you know, the people in the South are, you know, wide range of, of personalities and, and, and everything. And uh, you just, you can't judge somebody by its, uh, by his accent. You can't judge a book by its cover. I think that's a good message for um, good message for the song. And it's funny because that's the that's the thing that I connected to really strongly the first time I heard this song because I'm from the north of England and it's the other way around in England. If you're northern, you've got that very sort of, and I, I don't have it anymore, nowhere near my accent anymore, but that northern accent's viewed in very similar terms with, you know, like the elite down down in, in, in London and everything. So like growing up, you only heard one type of voice reading the news on TV and it was a very, that very clipped, very, very British, uh, here's the news, that kind of thing, where it wasn't until probably the late 80s, early 90s where I started hearing people with my accent on TV presenting things. So you do get that sort of real, it gets you back up, and of course you're going to be defensive about that if people think you're stupid just because of the way you talk. So I told, and I really latched onto that. Um, I think I've told the story before, but, jeez, oh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I had my Tom Petty playlist on while I was out. No, it wouldn't even be, that'd be three years ago, maybe. I was out running and I had just unfinished a 10K and I was just coming back round to sort of the last 500 meters warm, warm down, cool down kind of thing. And that song comes on. And you know that thing of where it, where it sort of takes your breath away, the emotion just tightens your chest up. And you, you just for that little split second, you can't quite breathe. And you think, I don't know if I'm going to cry or laugh, but something's going to happen. And I had that moment and this song, if it catches me off guard, if I'm not ready for it, it still has the ability to do that just because it's so beautiful. It's so mean, you yeah. know, it's so passionate, so beautiful. I just love it. And it's actually like this and Rebels, I think, where when he was uh, trying to do a concept album about the South, these are the two quintessential songs on the album, in my yeah. opinion, for that, for that goal uh, due to the, you know, the subject matter. Yeah. Because I, I said, I think, I don't know if I talked about this one, but one of the episodes but the four really are rebels um southern accents dogs on the run spike those are the four southern songs right you know and then we've got some of the other stuff that didn't make the album which we'll get into um but everything else is just sort of yeah it's this mishmash of weird choices and unusual situations and a lot of cocaine by the sounds of it <laughs> a lot of cocaine so should we touch on make it better forget about me since it was a a fairly big uh, single for for Tom and, and the band sure. peaked at as you mentioned peaked at 54th on the US chart 12th on the US rock chart per the US billboard chart it was Tom's 18th biggest hit which what? is when you when you think about it in terms of just you know the highest rankings so there's 17 crazy. songs with that with that finished higher on the on the U, uh, US uh, billboard chart than this one which is really puts it way up in the pantheon in terms of chart success for for yeah, tom so it's something that at least to consider and it's funny because he he hated it after the yeah. fact he called it i believe he called it trash yeah <laughs> uh, he said it and said that in conversations with tom petty paul zola's great book uh wish it hadn't made the album said it was a bad decision <laughs> you, know, you don't hear him usually there's a there's one here and there we'll talk about one on uh full moon fever uh in the future that songs he's just like oh i don't know how that made the album like <laughs> It's funny to have him who's in charge, really ultimately in charge, could have killed any song he wanted to kill. Uh, it is jaunty. It's it's a catchy tune. Uh, definitely it's a Dave Stewart production, right? So one of the three that he yeah. uh, was in charge of or produced. Um, so it's 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 interesting that as big of a hit as it was uh, from the chart standpoint that it did it drew the ire of, of Tom Petty after the fact. So that's really all I have to say about it. It's an okay song. It's not, it's kind of, uh, it is catchy. Uh, it's a decent album track, but it's, it's funny to hear Tom talk so badly about it. 
what I so what I'd written about. I think the last thing I'd written about this song in, in the episode was said like you know where don't come around here no more and you're gonna get it took the heartbreak into new territory in which they planted their flag and own the space i just never feel like they're living in the bones of this song it's almost like they're covering someone else's track right because it just never feels like a heartbreak it's like it's not a bad song it's a pretty good pop right. song actually i just don't really necessarily want tom Payne and the heartbreakers singing it because it just doesn't fit yeah i had it i had written down john t tin kamakachi and i think yeah. that does that does i mean i just don't I don't think Tom liked it, and so that therefore I, I knock it down a star too. Well, and it comes, it's the, it's the opener for side two, right? You've had Southern Accents on side one. You get up from the couch, put flip, flip the record over, and then this is the next song. It's just weird. And then we get another left-hand turn for the next song. So it's just, yeah, I don't know. We're going back to saying the same thing over and over. The album's just, it's not cohesive. <laughs> <laughs> not cohesive. It's not cohesive. <laughs> But one okay, so I wanted to talk about Dogs on the Run. So this is the track. Every time I do one of these podcast episodes with you, there's and I do all this listening to the re-listening to the album uh, over and over again. There's a, there's a track that usually emerges as uh, like this one that I hadn't. It's just a sleeper for me. So like yeah. I hadn't really listened to Dogs on the Run with any sort of consistency over the years, and listening to it the album so many times, this one really jumped it out to me as a good Heartbreakers track. And I you know look looking at the history of the song it did make sense because i do i do gravitate to the mike campbell uh, uh riffs and the, yeah. and the tracks that he uh tends to bring in and then tom improves on them and the two of them together when they write are just it's magic to me and like my ear so um this is one that i added to quite a few of my uh my playlists as a track that i want to hear more regularly than i have over the last 20 years so i i, I yeah. like curious to hear what you think of it it's not it's not at the level of rebels I don't think it's right. sonic sonics and all those kinds of things. And, and and it's not got the same gravitas of Southern accents. It's not got the same weirdnesses, but in terms of an album track, this is how you write them, man. This is like, you could probably have released that as a single as much as rebels, to be honest, because it's got a lot of similarities, sonic similarities to it. Um, yeah. It's how it sort of pins together because it comes after spike, right? It's the third song on track two. So you get this, you get spikes, this character sketch, and then you come out and straight away you get that beautiful arpeggiated guitar run. And then it's a song that, what I like about it is dynamically it moves lots. Even though it's got a consistent thing throughout and it doesn't move, it, there's not a, a whole bunch of different sections in it, like don't come around here no more or whatever, but it doesn't leave in one place. Like the verses are all kind of separate. There's a, there's not really a consistent story. So it's got that. It almost reminds me of like Jack, Jack, Jack Kerouac. On the road, when I read that book, it's got that same wanderlust, that wistful sort of always looking around and never quite being settled or happy in one place. And so again, you've got what is it, three minutes? What would it be? Three, four minutes? Three, three forty. You get this painting of almost the whole South to me in that song, and that, or almost like a Steinbeck thing where you've got these people traveling and their itinerants and they can't settle down anywhere. So it's got all these sort of big thematic um, dreams, and I think it hits them all. And again, like I said, I think this was the only song on the album that Mike Campbell rewrote, uh, co-wrote. Um, and I was reading back again about for, in prep for the episode, and you know, during that time, there was a lot of stuff going on. But <laughs> uh, Mike says to um, Warren, says, "Yeah, he says that was I was writing a lot of songs at that time. I was writing in bulk, so he'd sort of send Tom just twenty songs or something on a cassette, fully produced, drums, bass, guitars. He put synths in there, whatever, just no lyrics, right? And so." I, what I like is that this one jumped out because you would hate for this one because there was another one during that same batch of songs that didn't make it that ended up being a huge hit for someone else. So I'm really glad that this one kind of got through the net and, and Tom realized that, yeah, I got to write something around this because it's a fabulous song. Fabulous. Song. Yeah, it sounds it, it, their process writing over these years where it's very interesting because Mike Campbell, you could see, easily see him getting frustrated that no more of his music's not making the album. Uh, if if he's really writing, you know, handing him yep. twenty songs at once, but Tom confirmed that like he yep. just he writes in bulk. He's prolific in terms of his guitar riffs and and writing of guitar music. And you know, Tom would would anything that jumped out at Tom, he would he would grab it and start working on it. And they usually worked out very well. And I think this is a good example of one that he he liked it too. He said it's one of his one of the better tracks. Not well known. Yeah, uh, it's it's because it's on side two of an album that's kind of you know got some hits and it wasn't released as a single, but it probably could have been. It's an example though of when you've got two artists who really 
do trust each other, that trust relationship, you know, for Tom to say, I only like this one out of the 20. For Mike to know that Tom's not disparaging those other 19 songs, but just can't find, there's no way in for him. Because that's what Tom said, right? You know, he, he needed to just, it needed to connect with, I need to get an idea almost immediately about, yeah, I can do something with that. Or maybe I've had a, a theme or an idea that I can sort of over, transpose and overlay onto that. But that trust relationship between those two guys, that that's what made the Heartbreakers, you know, what one of the things that made the Heartbreakers as good as they were, because Mike knew that Tom's ear was pretty freaking good most of the time, you know? Well, and I think it's lack of ego for yeah. Mike, certainly. Uh, a lot of songwriters and guitarists with his talent could be a lot more of a pain in the butt to their lead singer front man yes. than, he, than he was. So I think he's just got that sort of humble attitude. It come, if you, if you're not following him on Instagram listeners out there, follow him on Instagram. Cause he does, he's doing some videos where he talks about songs that he's written and goes into how that came about and performs a little bit. And it's, it's just great. He's real. He's a real nice guy. And just a, just a great, great guitarist, probably my favorite rock guitarist of all time but then also the, the lack of ego on tom's part when boys of summer comes across his desk so to speak yeah. and he passes on it because he can't it's not what they were trying to do at the time and they didn't see a way in and then mike goes on has obviously a monster hit with don henley uh, doing the vocals on it and yeah. you know and, and and mike's just like you know that's good it paid for my house yeah. and tom was, ha- it was tom was happy for him it wasn't like he was uh, upset that uh, it didn't work out or that he didn't push hard enough for, for, for that track to be on Southern accents or a heartbreakers track in general. So, I mean, just the fact that they're both like, okay, it, it didn't work out for the heartbreakers, but I'm really happy that, you know, Mike went on and had a, a major hit with it uh, with, uh, with Henley. Super cool. I like the story that Mike tells about when he sort of gave the track and Henley sits there and just listens to it. Doesn't say a word, doesn't look at him, doesn't look up or anything. says, yeah, I think I can do something with this. Mike leaves and thinks, well, I guess probably he's not going to use that. And then, two hours three hours later or something Henley calls him and says dude I think I've just written the best song I've ever written like how cool is that you know yeah that's awesome and it's good to see Mike get his due outside of the heartbreakers too and have something that that Tom passed on uh turn into such a major hit for him but I mean all those guys I mean Ben Mont not quite as much on the writing side but the sheer volume when you really dig into it and I'm, I'm still finding other collaborations that you think what he worked on that song or he co-wrote this or he played on this and Mike Campbell's played on and written with a lot of different people over the years, you know, aside from his work with Tom. And there's one lyric in, in Dogs on the Run I wanted to point out too, because you did, you did mention Dogs on the Run as one of the four songs that's really about the South, right? So yeah. I, it, uh, it jumped out to me. She said, honey, ain't it funny how a crowd gathers around anyone living life without a net, <laughs> uh, how they'll beg you for answers, uh, but it won't be ever be enough. There's no way you could ever tell them. It's just dogs on the run. I thought that was a, a very poetic. I think that was the last verse of that uh, yeah. track. So, um, and I, I use it in my, when we get to the producer of the day, I use it to set up something else. And I think it is, it is something about uh, maybe rest, somebody restless in the South that, that just it wants to see the world or at least wants to see the country. Yeah. It's funny. It's so funny because I'd written that down too. Like I'm, I'd pick off, you know, when we do our episodes for these, I pick off little bits or whether it's a riff or whether it's a, whatever it might be. And that's the, the line too that I'd written. And it's funny because um, uh, when I interviewed Jake Thistle a long time ago now, he'd quoted that line back because I'd, I'd said something about, he was doing it. He was doing a show where he was turning up. I said like, well, how much sound check do you get? Says I'm none really, and I said, so you're, you're you're 14 years old going into a bar, and you're just standing up and playing an hour in front of a bunch of adults who are drinking, without a sound check and with sort of and he says, yeah, and that's what he said. He said, it's funny how a crowd gathers around anyone living life without net, and it's it is that sort of nice mantra that you can kind of hang a lot of um, deep philosophical thoughts on. I think so. Very cool. So the last last track off the the main album as it stands that I'd like to bring up is probably my, it might be my favorite song on the album. Uh, you know, don't come around here no more is obviously holds a special place in my heart, but the best of everything has really, especially over the last 10 years or so, uh, as the nostalgia has hit, uh, his, this is a wonderful, wonderful song. And I want to confirm with you, maybe you, maybe you didn't do this, but did you rate spike, uh, higher than, Best of everything. I think so. I think, did. think think about that. I'll I'll vamp for a second. Go ahead. Uh, because in conversations, uh, you know, Petty said it may be one of the best songs I ever wrote. 
I agree with that. I think it's just gorgeous. I've been listening to it a lot lately, especially lately after doing this uh, research and stuff. It's just an amazing song. And, you know, he used the the, the title as, uh, you know, the title for one of his compilation uh, collections. And um, I, I love the quote, uh, being good looking had, it, had its limits. Uh, the the, the, the uh, something that she said, I think, to him, the character said to him. Yeah. And just the, the the pictures that he's painting uh, throughout the song are just incredible. And I, you know, I, it's just so wistful and, you know, it's over before you know it, it all goes by so fast and the bad nights take forever and the good nights don't ever seem to last. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. No. And so I'd written, again, I mean, you talked about dog, dogs on the run being that earworm that once you start. And so same thing, like once I'd gone through the album and then I did the best of everything, I kind of, I, cause I, you know, I sit down and I listen to it in the context of the album, I use, what I usually do is listen to the whole side before I do a song. And then I listen to the song two, three times just to kind of get the rhythms of it and pick out, okay, I'm definitely going to want to talk about this. I'm definitely going to want to talk about that horn line, blah, 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 blah. But I don't really sit and listen, just listen to it. Just kind of let it float in. But damn it, man, since I did that episode, it's been the song I've been listening to, same thing over and over and over again. And, and I've definitely come to the conclusion that I scored it too low. So okay. I think rather than dumping Spike down, I think I've got to time over again and maybe i'll revisit this one it's definitely an eight at least yeah it, i would it say is just least, a glorious song yeah i would say a nine or a ten especially with how tom looked at it too and he said it may be one of the best songs i ever wrote you just gotta kind of consider that if it's if it's tom saying that then you gotta yeah. give it an, at least a nine in my opinion uh i just it's a great way to end the album uh in my producer of the day alternate uh, track list i do not end the album with this track but um I think it it is for what they had to work with and what they decided to include on the album. This is a perfect way to end it. Well, again, another funny, not funny story, but a weird route for this song to end up on an album where it was written for Hard Promises. Didn't fit Hard Promises. And you can sort of kind of see that. Um, given to Robbie Robertson, who needed a song for the King of Comedy. And so he goes away and says, can I do, put some horns in it? Because we doesn't like Tom in. They do all that kind of stuff. And that's my only, the only part of that song i don't like is that lead i think it's a flugelhorn or a or sorry french horn or an english horn that, that it just sounds a bit 80s to me you know what i mean and if you take that out which i'm going to try and i'm going to see if i can get some software that'll actually take that out just to see what it sounds like without that line in the rest of the horns are fantastic because it's the band yeah. like the band use horns better than almost anyone right there's no question about that so the rest of it sounds great and I also think, because I think we both picked the alternate version with the extra verse. I know why you take an extra verse out, especially when you're dealing with a song that's already got a couple of an album that's already got a couple of long songs on there. I totally get that. But I like that extra verse. And I think it, yeah. it the, the the pacing then of the song changes that little bit where it gets just even better, right? So yeah. So no, I I'm I'm gonna hold my hands up and I'm gonna say I agree with you. I rated this too low. Um, and I think it's probably one that because I think there's this one, uh, anything that's rock and roll. And there's one other that I think I might go and do a uh, a remix episode on sometime just to see how I feel about him now. So. so I have a little bit of trivia for you. Excellent. Do you mind if I? Okay. So, uh, you know, I like to look at, you know, I use Spotify. I like to look at the the, the number of streams to, to sort of see what other fans are listening to in terms of what, you know, what are the most popular songs on a particular album or, in a, you know, for a particular artist. So I wanted you to name the five most streamed tracks from Southern Accents. See if you can do it. It doesn't need to be in order. Okay. okay. Uh, but if you can name the five, uh, what are the, which one of the five of the nine, right? There's only nine tracks. So on Spotify, what what uh, what do you think they are? I'd be pretty I'd be pretty confident in saying that Don't Come Around Here No More is number one. Yeah. I'd be I'd be absolutely blown away if that wasn't the case. With a, with a bullet, yes. With <laughs> 34.1 million. I'd say probably because it was released as a single, Make It Better, is probably in there. It's not. It's not in there. Well, that's good news. Okay, so then I'll say, just going from gut, then I'll say um, Rebels, Southern Accents. Yes, yes. Spike, because fans love it. Nope. Spike's not in there, really. Oh. Please don't tell me Mary's new car is in there. It's not. Oh, thank God for that. Okay. Um, it, it ain't nothing to me. He's in there. Top five. Oh. Okay. 
So that only leaves two then, right? That's dogs on the run and yep. best of everything. That's right. Okay. So okay. Here, are the, here are the numbers for you. 34.1 okay. million for Don't Come Around Here No More. I thought that might trip you up, but I wasn't sure. 34.1, uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I wouldn't have guessed it. 34.1 million for uh, Don't Come Around Here No More, obvious uh, that that would be in there. Rebels, I think, was obvious as well. And I think after that, you could probably guess that Southern Accents would be on there. And it is, yeah. but it's fourth. It's 3.0 million. Uh, three million wow. on on the dot. Uh, well, not really on the dot. You know, three million forty six thousand. And then, but actually, in the third spot was best of everything, three point six million. Wow. And then the number five track was Dogs on the Run, one point zero seven million. So Spike, you mentioned eight hundred seventy one thousand streams, uh, and Make It Better, Forget About Me was three quarters of a million, seven hundred fifty thousand. So. Uh, those were the five that had at wow. least a million streams. I just thought that was interesting. So a little piece of trivia for anybody that's out there um, wondering uh, which, which songs are resonating with people. So it, it is interesting that we both, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of like Dogs on the Run. Yeah. And it is it has creep, crept up into the top five here in terms of what people are listening to off this album. Definitely. Okay. When I follow up, I want to ask you uh, just a very direct question and see what you think. Is Mary's new car, the worst song that Tom ever put on an album. <laughs> uh, I love the way that you phrase that. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I I wouldn't go so far. I'd have to really think about the worst track on each album and then try to yeah. rank them. And you know, the bottom. I I I don't. It doesn't do anything for me. It, I, I left it off of my producer for a day uh, track list as well. Alternate track list uh, just doesn't grab me at all. I know there's. There is a demographic uh, of women named Mary uh, who do love this track and, you know, it, they have bought a new car and uh, this is the theme song, but for me, it doesn't do a whole lot. Well, I love the sentiment behind it. I said this in the episode, that, you know, writing a song for Mary Clouser, who's, you know, the, the den mother, as Tom called her, for the Heartbreakers, that's super cool. But it never goes anywhere. It's just like this weird, it's the only time, honestly, and I'm probably, I hope, People take this for what it is, but it's the only time I can think of in the catalog where it's a lazy effort. Like there's just nothing happens in that song. It's the same thing for whatever, for almost four minutes with this repeated thing. I think, I think I've figured out there's only 10 actual lines in that song. So even like, you know, if you look at it, ain't nothing to me, make it better. I don't love those songs. I can't remember which song it is off um, the second album that I just think is unfinished. This one's just like, dude, really? And even, so I thought, well, I'll just read you quickly. Um, Benmont. Oh, no, he wasn't talking about Mary's new car, but he's talking about, you know, some of the songs that were left off. And he's, I'll, I'll just read this a little bit. So it's from the Warren Zane's biography, and he's, he's talking to Benmont. He says, um, you know, the bigger picture was that we were all on a lot of coke. Um, on Long After Dark, I discovered how much cocaine there was in the world. And then I came home and I went straight on tour with Stephen Nicks. And boy, did I discover how much cocaine there was in the world. Um, he says, uh, the Southern Accents was a great idea for a record. Tom started writing that record, from what I understand, by just writing words associated with the South. Rebels, trailer, apartment. Then somehow, out of those three words that become songs, two are left off the album. How the fuck do you leave trailer off Southern Accents and make it better and something else I can't remember are on the album? So he says, it'd be like leaving no second thoughts off you're going to get it or you tell me off down the torpedoes. So that's Ben Mont sort of saying the same thing, right? We're getting these weird choices. And what I don't know is, who actually did decide sort of the final track listing? Because I know Jimmy Iovine was the guy who said, we're not doing a double album. When he came back in and Tom said, can you come back and help us? On the condition that, first of all, you get out of that house, we go record in a studio and get away from all that bullshit. And then the second thing is, you know, we need this, this structure around what we're doing. So I don't know if Jimmy was the one who sort of said, well, these are the songs that we need to put on to make this pop record. If you're going to put Don't Come Around Here No More on there and make it better, then maybe you want to put Mary's New Cross. I don't know who who had that final say on that uh, on the track listing. So. Yeah, if you look at the, if you read between the lines and look at the time, you know, the things that are going on at the time, and you look at uh, the last album, uh, Long After Dark, and what Tom was seemingly trying to do with the tracks that were left off, and Jimmy called them to country. Yeah. Remember, if you remember that yeah. conversation. Um, it seemed like he was interested in visiting this Roots Rock for a, quite a bit of time here, and whenever he tried to do that, Jimmy was pulling him back into more of a mainstream, you know, arena rock type yeah. sound. And I think some of the stuff like trailer, uh, the apartment song, walking from the fire. So those are the three that were written 
uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, written during this time yeah. and left off. But, and it kind of made their way out into the world uh, via playback, box set, or the American Treasure um, compilation. But if you look at those three songs as a whole, it definitely fits within the, you know, Southern uh, concept album about the South that Tom was going for, but I don't think Jimmy was on board with it. And yeah. a lot of that stuff just got removed. And I think at a certain point when you're working on a, an album this long, just the, the track, you know, the, the track list just kind of maybe gets thrown together and this is what we're left with. And I, I, Tom looked back on this album and was happy with what it became. He said it was a very much a struggle to get it written and stuff, but he was happy with the album at, at the end of the day. Uh, I just think it could have been better and we should, we can get into that soon. Absolutely. But there was, and I didn't know this until I read Michael Washburn's book. I'd missed this in um, when I was reading the Zane's biography. There was a fourth song that Tom had called Sheets, and it never made it out of his notebook. Benmont says he doesn't know him, so I'll, I'll just kind of read you. Um, so he says, yeah, there, um, there were songs that not even Tench knew much about that didn't get past Petty's notebook. One of them was called Sheets, a stark look at the racism that so often structured life in the American South. It was a really scary song, Petty says, but one that would have had to have been included if the original idea for the album had been carried through to its conclusion. And I found that really interesting because I was saying to Michael that, you know, that where Rebels kind of gets misinterpreted and gets spun around for people to use as their own sort of battle cry, had he written this song sheet and included it, and I'm assuming it would have been, we can only assume that it would have been very critical about, you know, racism and, and lynching and, and all those kinds of things maybe that would have offset some of that. Maybe it would have made that sort of, it would have clarified the concept where he's not sort of advocating for this, but he's sort of commenting on it critically. So it would have been super interesting. And God, wouldn't you love to see the lyrics of that? Because they would love to hear it. Probably, Whatever, yeah. well, I don't think it was ever recorded. That's the thing. I don't think it was recorded. I don't think the words got off the page, but God, it would be fun to see or interesting to see what he'd actually written down there. Yeah, I wonder if, you know, because he usually sits there and writes with a piano a guitar. I wonder if there was, you know, him a demo. I'm sure there's no, it was not going to get out, but if there yeah. was some recording of it, however bad it was, I would love to hear it. Me too. Yeah, really would. Well, let's get into the outtakes then, because they're they're good ones, man. Like again, as Ben yeah. says, how how are these things not making this album? Like it's crazy. Trailer. Yeah, the, how does trailer not make this album? It's so. Yeah, good. let's start. Let's start. Let's start with tra a trailer. Uh, you know, that's with Stevie, or is this apartment song with Stevie? Start, apartment song is with Stevie. Apartment yeah. song with Stevie. Okay, I had the note written wrong there, but um. You know, it's great to hear this version of it. I think I knew it prior to hearing them revive it for Mudcrutch. And I think right. the fact that he did revive it for Mudcrutch indicates that Tom did like the song quite a bit and probably was a little upset that it was left off. It made the the playback box set. It also made the American Treasure. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, it made playback. I don't know if it made American Treasure. It didn't make American, right. American Treasure. Apartment song did. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I got myself mixed up here. Uh, so <laughs> the demo is, is really good. Um, I love the line, uh, boy, she looked, used to look so good at times. Like <laughs> I, every time I hear that, I laugh. I, I just get a chuckle out of it. It's like, it's a compliment, but it's also like a backhanded compliment that, you know, maybe she wasn't that good looking, but at times she looked, <laughs> she looked so good. <laughs> and maybe it was something going on with the, the character's, yeah. uh, you know, headspace. Uh, but I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it absolutely should have been on this album. Uh, certainly added it to my version of it. Um, and then Apartment Song, it's great to hear him and Stevie singing together. They sing together for, for you know, the entire yeah. uh, track and definitely has... Both these tracks have major vibe, vibes of the South and should have been included. Um, and, and I think, you know, what, what I like about those two, especially because out of the three, those are the two that were used later. Yeah. And so you can sort of see how there's, a, there's definitely a, a creative growth before they get re recorded, right? And so then there's definitely sort of a sonic difference. So where in um, the apartment song, uh, you get Mike solo. On the Full Moon Fever version, you get those big toms, and it's kind of keeping that that really rhythmic beat going, so we don't get that solo in there. So it's just that creative change, and I really always enjoy watching how songs evolve over time. And then, you know, quite often that does happen live, where artists will take things in different directions and they'll they'll change the mood or the tempo, whatever it might be. Um, but getting that sort of that growth through uh, the recordings and having those old ones to go back to is always super interesting. It's the same thing with um, Trailer, because on the original you get that really staccato, muted guitar playing the uh, Mike's doing that doesn't end up on the Mudcrutch album, uh, Mudcrutch version, which is a lot more country. 
you know, and it's got a bit more of a country swing to it than a rock and roll song where the, the original has got a country flavor, but it's more Southern rock. So I really love those differences to see how the creative process changes over time. It's lots of fun to see that. Yeah, you know, Mudcrutch also just seemed like at the end of his career, Tom was really exploring his Southern rock. Yeah. What could his his career been if he had just stayed with Mudcrutch and yeah, really explored the the roots rock, Southern rock uh, roots uh, from his, you know, his growing up and his uh, his youth. Uh, and then I really like the fact that the trailer came back as a really good track. So it's you know they they finished it up and it's it's quite it's quite good. Well, it's those ones. It's same, well, same as best of everything, right? Where obviously was really happy with the song, but and it's funny here because you know you, when we listen to those songs, we're not the artist. Where you could have put that on Hard Promises, probably, you know, because I'm sure the and the way because they, they you know if you, if you go back and listen to the way they used to play it live in because they played this live in 1980, you know, before it was and so when you listen to that, it's like yeah, it's more bit it's more of a rock and roll song. There's no horns in there, and it's got the extra burst, and so it could fit. But then what I love is the fact that it's there, and at some point. Someone says, you know, we should, you know, we should look into, you know, we should redo, we should, we should redo trailer. That was a good song. We should have put that on something. Should have been on Southern Access. Let's, let's do that one and just give it, breathe some new life into it. And that's, that's just super cool, you know? Yeah. So let me add, so we have, we have three covers that didn't make, that were recorded at the time that didn't make the album. Uh, and it, they would have made more sense if this had been a double album and you're trying to fill, you know, 18 tracks or something. Yeah. Uh, Image of Me was on the playback box set, Conway Twitty, Twitter, uh, Twitty cover, <laughs> uh, Big Boss Man, uh, Jimmy Reed cover, Cracking Up, Nick Lowe cover. And, you know, yeah, the Nick Lowe one is a little, I, I went back to listen to the original and I was like, this is an odd choice for a <laughs> concept, you know, Englishman uh, covering this Englishman uh, uh, for, for a concept album about the South. Uh, so I didn't include any of those. Which I can get into the, the actual track listing. So why don't you, if you would, um, give me your producer for a day uh, track list for this album? What would you do? Okay, so it's tight. So I've taken I've taken a path that fans probably are not going to love, and I'm probably going to get some comments on this. But start with Rebels. But I'm going to go the alternate version. And one of the main reasons is, again, I think that. <laughs> It loses a little bit of impact just because it's with those horns up so much. It, there's not as much space in it as there as there possibly could be. And I love the fact that they took out those drum hits in the intro over the top of Mike's guitar playing. Because I think that then when they do come in and the drums come in, it's got more impact. So that's that's why I kind of went with the alternate version. Straight into trailer. Again, that's a good segue. Straight into dogs on the run. And then finish side one with Southern Accent. So I'm so I'm going, I'm doing a I'm doing a Paulson here. I'm starting out, I'm loading up the front end with all the big guns. Cause I think they I think the sequence of those really, really flows. Then side two, start with Spike, um, into the apartment song, walking from the fire, and then finish with the alternate version with the extra verse of the best of everything. And if I could throw one caveat into, I'd say I'd just get rid of that little that lead horn line that I talked about. I think that would then be for the concept, for that Southern Accents concept, I think those songs really flow and everything fits to my ear. I have listened to this actually. You, you previous previewed this for me, and I do I do think as a straight concept album about the South, this does work. The, the flow works very well. I think you did a good job in terms of fast, slow, uh, you know, loud, softer, quieter, and then closing with best of everything is is excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a this is a this is a good one. If I had decided to remove. Don't come around here no more. This is this would be something that I would have would have done. So do you want me to run through mine? Well, I just have to throw in a quick caveat okay. though, just before people do lose their minds. I love Don't Come Around Here No More. I gave it a 10. Yeah. I think it's a phenomenal song. It's one of those standouts in his catalogue. But it doesn't fit the concept. So I was trying to just get back to the concept of Southern Accents. What I would do is probably, I think I told you this, is I'd release Don't Come Around Here No More as a single and maybe put make it uh, make it better, forget about me on the B side. And it ain't nothing to me. You know, if that turned up later on playback or American Treasure, I'd be fine with that. And same with Mary's New Car. I just I'll give chapter and verse on why I don't like that song. So I think, again, just bringing it back to the concept, those eight songs, when I listened to it, I was like, yeah, this works for me. And it's short. It's quite punchy. It's only 20 minutes per, just less yeah. than 20 minutes per side. So, yeah. I think it works. Uh, and I, I do wonder how much the fact that, you know, Tom knew that he probably had a hit with Don't Come Around Here No More prompted him to yeah. put it on the album because he wasn't one to leave any 
big hits off. Like the Beatles would um, release, had like a policy or something that Recently, they would release yeah. uh, singles and not have them on the, you know, wouldn't release them again on the album until later, I think yeah. later on. Tickets Arrive, um, Paperback Rider, Hey Jude, all those were singles only, right? So the, the, yeah. the past, um, past Masters uh, discs, I think, had just a, a boatload of just yeah. amazing classics that never were never on an album. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't something that Tom did. So, I like the I like what you're doing, and maybe you could have convinced him uh, to release really as a single. It still would have been a major hit for him. Um, so here here's how I justified including it. Okay, so I started. I also prefer the. I just think the the alternate version of Rebels is is superior in many many ways. Uh, so than the album version. So I'm starting there, and then I'm I'm pulling what I you know call another Paulson, which is where I'm going to. <laughs> going to uh bring back uh a couple of tracks from their last sessions so you know uh jimmy Iovine said that keeping me alive was too country for uh the last album yeah and long after dark so why not since we've we're reviving best of everything why not revive keeping me alive it works really well after rubbles uh fits really well sonically i believe and it does have a it doesn't really talk about the south but it does have obviously a southern feel to it with the way it's written in the music so southern accents at three uh and then i'm bringing back another track from long after dark it's only a couple of years ago so why not keep a little soul now this one if you listen to it you can kind of hear uh you know, he's talking, the, the main character is talking to his girlfriend or girl that he likes and is trying to, it sounds to me like he's trying to get her to leave and leave the, leave the town, leave the area, leave whatever. So maybe that little bit of that wanderlust starting here on side A with Keep a Little Soul. It does have a, you know, great piano and roots rock feel to it to me. And then to closing out side A, best of everything, alternate version. Uh, fantastic way, I think, to, to, to close side, side A. And uh, then opening up the side uh, B, the apartment song uh, with, with Stevie Nicks. Great to hear her uh, along with him opening the second side, walking from a fire, which we didn't really get into a whole lot. But if we're briefly talking about that, definitely has some Southern storytelling in it, uh, talking about his little brother being uh, arrested by the cops for drug yeah. dealing drugs. Uh, he, she's talking about uh, he's talking about uh, his how his mom loved Chuck Berry, I think, uh, last verse, if I remember remembering correctly. Um, some some very vivid pictures there from walking on the fire. Then I would go into the trailer, uh, the demo version. I've had to make a couple playlists so I could listen to this in my car. So I use the mud crutch <laughs> version in my car because I don't have the playback uh, available yeah. there, but I do have it on my desktop. So trailer, uh, third track side B, then spike, uh, which. To me, is kind of a take it or leave it track in here. But you're you, the fact that you like it so much, I and it is it is does fit with these concept album uh, idea uh, at nine, and then uh, dogs on the run at at ten. And to me, dogs on the run is sort of the signifier that this is this is Tom and his group of his pack leaving Florida to go to California. And who do you yeah. meet in California? You meet weird people like Dave Stewart who take you down the rabbit hole. And so to close the album at 11, don't come around here no more kind of sums up the entire thing. His whole youth, the, you know, South rebels, Southern accents, uh, et cetera, trailer, and then getting into California there. Cause he obviously loved the state of California and um, that it is weird. It is a weird state. You have to have that sort of, you know, <laughs> adventurous spirit to come out here. And uh, he he did. He came out here and he met Dave Stewart. And Dave Stewart, uh, you know, took him down the rabbit hole. I love it. I love the justification. And it does, like I said, I, I you sent the the place to me too. And I slid and listened. I was like, yeah, this does definitely flow. Does and I do work? like absolutely. And I think, like you said, because I think when you end side one with the best of everything, and you end side two with Don't Come Around Here No More, those are very very good bookends because it would be difficult to shoehorn in Don't Come Around Here and. and no more anywhere, anywhere else, else. You, you can't really put it in between right i mean of course they've done on the album but but it doesn't work anywhere else and i know that you know again I'll, I'll, michael washburn said it it sort of does fit with that southern theme of get off my lawn you know it's got that kind of ornery sort of southern 
brusqueness to it almost. So, so I'm, I'm totally fine with that. That's great. I think that's great. Yeah. And I think the, the tempo change at the end too, just the way that that, yeah. that closes the album, it's, it's, it's a monster and uh, you could still release it as a single, obviously, and, and make a lot of money. This, this album, I think like, you know, I've, I've sent, I've sent you my wildflowers too, which I love. Yeah. Uh, this is Me probably too. my second, second favorite alternate uh, track list that I've made. Cool. I, I really like listening to this and yeah, you, you did ask, well, you used um, keeping me alive and keep a little soul on the long after dark alternate. Yeah. I think I would probably jettison that idea because thinking about it, it was like these songs fit really well with what Tom was heading towards and ended up trying to do with Southern accents, but really wasn't able to do it because he brought Jimmy Ivy back in and Dave Stewart's there. And yeah. got, as we mentioned, a hodgepodge. But if he had really gone hardcore and really tried to do this, I think these two tracks might have really fit. Now, I wonder, was he even, were these even considered? Like, these were not used on Long After Dark. They're, yeah. they're two really good songs. He did like them later enough to put them on his American Treasure compilation. But were they even considered? Did he think about it? Was it, you know, too much to go back to 82, 81 when these were written and... Uh, perhaps include them on a, uh, you know, on Southern accents. I, I really wonder if if this was even something that you know crossed his mind. Well, it clearly wasn't too early to go back, right? Because the best of everything is from 1980. Right. It was written, it was played in 1980 live, so it was written at least in 1980. So, yeah, I don't think there was any, there wouldn't have been any reticence about that. And I think that, you know, I think best of everything gets on there because, you know, if Robbie Robertson produces your record, that's kind of a big deal at that stage in your career. You know, yeah, so I probably. think that, that was always sitting there waiting. Well, I want to do something with it eventually. And this is where it sort of just dropped, right? Well, we've got to use it now or it's never going to get onto an album, maybe. Yeah, I think he didn't, he wasn't planning to use it and, until Robbie Robertson changed it. Yeah, or, exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, like fixed it or whatever he, you know, he thought. Like he thought that Robbie did such a great job with it that he decided to include it on the album. But I think it, yeah. you know, I think it fits with everything else that's here. Yeah, I'm totally on board with that. Absolutely. Well, it's the nice thing though too, but you can have when you take these different approaches, and that's what I love about your playlists. It makes you think about, you know, the songs, it's the context that the songs were written in, all those kinds of things. It just tweaks that and makes you think about it a little bit more deeply, right? Well, this is so, a situation where I, I I just wanted to include Don't Come Around Here No More because it's a fantastic song and I have to yeah. back into my reasoning <laughs> as to why to include it. But I do kind of think, you know, you, his whole deal, Tom's, was that he, the whole story is that they were they grew up in Florida, left Florida, went to California. Things got weird, and yeah. I think that this is a summation of that whole story to that point. You know, nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five. So I guess one last question then: How often do you actually? I mean, you've, you've been listening to it a lot lately, but Southern Accents, you said, probably isn't an album that you throw on very often, and it's not one that I do either because because it is so jarring. But it, the weird thing is, and I. Definitely do it with the vinyl. I don't know if I would do it with my phone, but I don't skip over Mary's New Car. I don't skip over It Ain't Nothing to Me. I don't start side two on track two. So if you're going to listen to this album, do you still, can you still appreciate the album as an album and as this snapshot of this crazy, frenetic sort of creative period that was going on in Tom's life? Or is it just too messy that you don't really listen to it as an album or you don't think you will again? Uh, I probably won't for a while. Uh, yeah. If I do listen to this album, I'll be listening to my version of it because I love it. <laughs> and I have decided that I'm better at this than some people that were producing <laughs> albums back in the day. At least to at least to what I like to listen to. So I can get the highlights of it. I can bring yeah. up all these B-sides that were amazing that didn't that don't see the light of day. Those are the ones I want to hear over and over again. I don't need to hear Mary's new car. Yeah. Um, you know, so or it ain't nothing to me. Like I don't need that in my life at this point. So um I probably am done for a while with the original version of this of this album. Well, let's continue to listen to the my version of it. And you know, when you're in the mood to listen to Tom, I don't always throw on an album unless I want to hear your specific album. And I don't think that this is going to trump maybe like my Dogs with Wings playlist that has a bunch of live, yeah. you know, B and B side type versions of songs that I'd like to hear uh, more often. So, you know, in the pantheon of Tom Petty, it's a it's a solid solid album. Obviously, has a huge hit on it. Some other great tracks, but as we mentioned, the lows are, I would say, a little lower than a typical Heartbreakers album. And that was the I came out of this, so I've, I've got three tens on there, and I've got two fives and a four. So it's it's the biggest discrepancy between yeah. between songs that I've come across so far because it is you know the, like I said the highs are so high. You should have you should have four 
four tens if you <laughs> graded best of everything properly. <laughs> I'm gonna go back and redo it. I know that's gonna be I'm gonna go back and redo this. And maybe I'll get you on. Maybe I'll get you on when I redo no. that episode. Then I'll make you sit and listen to bass lines <laughs> and cowbells and <laughs> so good. So good. Uh, okay, well, where can people find you, John? Where can they find you if they're looking for you online to come and talk to you about your playlist? Uh, at four for four underscore John, the number four F O R, the number four underscore John. That's my main fantasy football handles. And if you want to tell me how great my Southern accents, uh, alternate track list is, then be, you know, for sure, uh, hit me up there. If you don't like it, then just go scream into the void because that's, <laughs> that's where your criticism belongs. <laughs> That's about as much as you oh, listen I, to it. <laughs> I'm actually interested to hear what people think. And uh, I will send you a link to the playlist that actually has the Mud Crutch version of trailer. So if people out there want to listen to the album front to back in, in my way, then uh, do that. And I, I think you should also uh, offer your a link to your uh, YouTube playlist so that people can hear it that way as well. 